Thank you, Chris. First time I met her, she, she took a class with me, and you should get to know her. She's a really lovely person and a, a nurse by trade, right? A pharmacist. A pharmacist. I knew that. Oh, so is Lisa. Um, so I, I, I've, like many of you guys, I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm on Sudafed, and I've got this sort of like extra zen thing going on this morning. <laughs> I feel a little... <laughs> So I'll start with a story. <laughs> Let's do that. So, you know, I, I've talked some, you know, I, I like to pull out my travel stories sometimes. I've talked some about how when I, I traveled to China and the first time that I went there over the course of four years, I traveled often, um, I traveled alone. I went by myself. And my end goal in going there was to fly out to a remote city in the western part of the country uh, where I was going to spend a few months to prepare to move there for a few years, which I did. Actually, Andrea helped me move there. The next time I went, she went with me and brought a suitcase. But for this first time, I went by myself. And so I decided to spend a few days in Beijing, mostly to just sort of adjust to the time, but, you know, to see some of the sights. And at that point, I knew exactly zero Chinese, except how to say hello, right? I knew ni hao. So there I was. I was 30 years old. I was in this huge city by myself. And I remember getting off the plane at night. It was like after midnight. And I was super tired and disoriented after all the travel. And so I accidentally hired a van to take me to my hotel rather than a taxi, which cost me like three times as much. And then I realized I was going to be the only passenger. And I realized a little too late that maybe it's a little bit creepy to get into a van with someone you don't know, in a city you don't know, with no cell phone and no one to contact. And we're driving through the night streets of Beijing, and it was one of the more polluted days, and you know, all the lights are a little bit hazy and eerie, and I just remember thinking, okay, here I am. And I made it to my hotel, and I was fine, and I tried to sleep. And I got up the next morning when daylight came, and I was hungry. So I was like, okay, I need to wander outside and just maybe see if I can find a restaurant. And of course, there's lots of restaurants in Beijing, but I knew I wanted one with a menu that had pictures. Because so often when I was learning the language, you know, you just get a menu, and it has all of these Chinese characters, and I would just point. And whatever came out, came out, which is part of how I learned. But I was like, okay, I want pictures. So I found a restaurant with some bright colors and big pictures, and I went in, and I sat down, and I ordered something off the menu that looked halfway familiar, and it was like a fried rice sort of dish. And they brought it out in this kind of big pile on a big plate, and I started to eat it. And it was kind of surprisingly bland. So I grabbed the little bottle of soy sauce down at the end of the table, you know, like one of those little glass bottles with the red top, and I poured it on. And it just still didn't taste quite right, so I grabbed it again, and I poured some more on. Like, this just doesn't taste salty, or it just kind of tastes um, off. And I thought it was me, because maybe I was tired, and so I just kept continuing to pour it on. If you know me, I like love salt, too, so I'm like putting it on and putting it on. And so finally, there was like this puddle in the bottom of the plate. And if you, if you eat with chopsticks, you know, which was all I, I had, you know that the wetter rice gets, like, the, least, you know, the less you're able to actually bring it up into your mouth. So I'm trying my best to like not look like that American that had poured way too much soy sauce on, and I'm doing this, and I'm looking like a fool, and then it dawns on me that maybe it isn't soy sauce. And so I dip my finger in, and I'm like, oh, it's vinegar, right? So it's actually dark brown vinegar, which is what I found on most tables in China. Actually, I don't think I ever went to a restaurant with soy sauce. Do you in Shanghai? Do you have soy sauce? Yeah. No, yeah, it's vinegar and chilies out where I was, and maybe some, maybe some garlic. But everything in my experience up to that point had told me that bottles of dark liquid in Chinese restaurants should be soy sauce. Um, it wasn't what I was expecting, and I had a little aha moment there, and I went out and I got some street food and found a way to eat. 
Well, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about what happens when we worship God together on Sunday mornings, as described maybe somewhat cryptically by the Apostle John, who was a mystic who was exiled on an island when he wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And it's like John is saying to us, he's like, you know, like what you think is soy sauce here, it might not actually be soy sauce. You know, what you think is going on may not really be all of what's going on. All of your sort of expectations and experiences up to this point might not actually be revealing what's happening. And so we're going to delve a little bit deeper into that this morning. We're going to talk about how worship reveals. Right, so the sermon series that we've been part of here is called Getting Over Ourselves. And the idea is that worship helps us see that there's something larger that we're part of, right? that we're part of a collective story, we're part of a collective whole that is mysterious, and it helps bring meaning to our lives. So before we go back to our exiled prophet John, I'd first like to look at three stories about scrolls. Three stories about scrolls from the Bible and the people who open them and the people who read them. And so the first one is from another prophet named Isaiah. Now, the blessing and the curse of being a prophet is that prophets can see where things are going, right? The blessing and the curse of a prophet is that prophets can see where things are going, and that can be both encouraging and it can be disheartening. And so Isaiah the prophet, who lived a few hundred years before Jesus, he could see that Jerusalem was both going to be destroyed. You know, he was looking at them and he's saying, the natural consequences of the way that you're behaving is going to bring destruction on you. Right? You're treating the, the foreigners with contempt. You're not caring for the poor among you and the widow and the orphan, and you're not tending to spiritual matters of the heart that help your character. And it's coming, and it's coming soon. So he could see that they were going to have some trouble ahead, but then he could also foresee a time like way in the future when glory would return to his people and to that city. Right? So he's prophesying to them. He's prophesying doom followed by a future glory. And in chapter 29, he paints a picture of that future glory. And then he says to the people, he says, The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, you prophets. He has covered you, your heads, you seers. He says, For this whole vision is nothing but words that are sealed in a scroll. Right? They're locked up. He said, If you give the scroll to someone who can read and you say, Read this, please, they'll answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give a scroll to someone who can't read and you say, read this, please, they'll answer, I don't know how to read. So Isaiah is painting this picture of future rescue and glory, and then he tells his, peop his people that that vision is inaccessible to them, that there's no way they can grasp the meaning. It's like they're in a deep sleep. And you know, when I was writing in that van through downtown Beijing, my first night there, I remember actually thinking I was getting a sense for the city. Like I was sitting in that van alone on the left-hand side with a large window, and I'm looking out, and... I've been to several big cities in the world, and you can kind of, you know, get a sense for the, the vibe of them. But really, I could only, like, just see through the dark and the thick pollution and the hazy lights at night. And by daylight, the place looked completely different. It had a whole different feel. It was much friendlier. I actually love that city. And I think Isaiah is saying the same thing here. He's saying, you think you know and you understand what I'm saying, but you have no idea. It's like a scroll, and the words inside, they're like gobbledygook to you. They're like Chinese to me when I first moved there. It's like, you need like a veil to be lifted. And then he goes on and he says, okay, but in a very short time, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. And out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord and the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So even though the people then can't understand his vision, he writes it down anyway, because he believes that one day soon, someone will be able to unseal that scroll and reveal the meaning. 
He says, the deaf will hear, eyes will see. Someone will come along and say, what you're, say what you're actually putting on your rice is vinegar. Right? They'll have an aha moment. So if we fast forward then to the Gospel of Luke, there's a story about Jesus very early in his ministry. And he's just been baptized, and he's gone out to the desert for 40 days to fast and pray. And he returns to his hometown. This is what Javi read for us this morning from the lectionary. You know, Jesus comes back into his farming village of Nazareth. He's skinny and ragged, probably, from being out there and tan. And he starts to minister, we're told, in the power of the Spirit. And so on a Saturday, on a Sabbath, he goes to the village synagogue to worship with his community. And apparently he's one of the official scroll readers at the synagogue because someone hands him a scroll of the writings of the prophet Isaiah, and he starts to read aloud. You know, those of you um, who came to the joint Thanksgiving service that we had with St. Clair's Temple Beth Emmet, were any of you guys there? I think we had like 20 people show up, so a couple of you here. You know, it was kind of an ordeal when they brought out the scrolls, wasn't it? He like opened up the altar and there were these giant scrolls with these lovely like gold hanging things on them and people started singing this boisterous music and some were clapping and even some were dancing and Ken and I are trying to figure out what they wanted us to do ceremonially. They're handing us things and we're like, okay. And they go onto the altar and they unroll these giant scrolls and then the cantor comes up and she starts to read the Hebrew words and sing them aloud. And it was an ordeal. You know, it was like this really beautiful ordeal. And so I don't know if it was as much of an ordeal in Jesus' synagogue or for that particular service, but he's acting as a cantor like that as he unrolls that scroll and he begins to read. And he reads the words that Javi read us this morning. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up that scroll and he hands it back to the attendant and he goes and he just sits down. And I kind of think of it like the equivalent of like, you know, he like dropped the mic and went and sat down. He's like, yeah, I just did that. (laughs) And you can feel that tension because the text says that everybody was looking at him. So it must have been odd. So he's just sitting there and everybody's looking at him. And he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? So he's saying to them, he's saying like, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision. I'm here to open your eyes. I'm here to bring revelation of what this scroll means, right? So Jesus, he unsealed the scroll by revealing its present meaning through his own life and ministry. Unlike Isaiah's readers, Jesus can unseal it. He can read it. He can understand it. And Luke is telling us through this that there's a new revelation of what the scripture means when it's viewed through the lens of Jesus's life and ministry. And Isaiah was dreaming of a day when glory would return to his people. And Jesus is saying, you want that? Look at my life. There will be freedom for the prisoners. There will be recovery of sight for the blind and the oppressed will be set free. And the people understood the implication. And they thought that what he was saying was blasphemous. And so they chased him up a hill and they tried to push him off of a giant cliff. And I've actually stood on that cliff and it's super, super tall. And now there's a big highway under it. But you wouldn't want to be pushed off that cliff. And I thought, that's kind of a weird story where they're trying to throw Jesus off of a cliff. But if that one's not strange enough, this last story is actually one of my favorites in the Bible, and it's even stranger still. And it's about the apostle Philip. So Philip was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. And after Jesus is already gone and he's ascended into heaven, there's a bunch of persecution of his followers in the city of Jerusalem. And so Philip leaves, and he goes, and he's on the highway between Jerusalem and the city of Gaza. 
So this is the same Gaza that we talk about today, right, with the Gaza Strip. So he's going on the highway between Jerusalem and Gaza, and Philip feels like God tells him to come alongside a chariot that's also driving along the road. And so Philip does. And he overhears a man reading aloud from a scroll. And that scroll happens to be from the writings of the prophet Isaiah, right? The same Isaiah in all of these stories. So the man is an Ethiopian eunuch, and he oversaw the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. So he's an influential, probably wealthy man who had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he's on his way back home. And so Philip comes alongside him, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? And so he invites Philip to come up and to sit with him and to explain it. And so Philip, he used the book of Isaiah, and he explains its meanings through the lens of Jesus' life. And it says that the eunuch was so moved that he then asked to be baptized immediately. He said, pull over, there's some water there. And so Philip, he gets out with him and he baptizes him. And then this is the weird part. As soon as that eunuch comes up out of the water, Philip just disappears. The text tells us that the Spirit of the Lord took him away. And then he reappeared like 30, 35 miles away from where he was. And we have no idea why this is. Maybe as a sign of the validity of what he was saying. All I know is that I have always wanted this to happen to me. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, maybe we could just like reappear at Isolita about, you know, right after church or something. We could make it our big ask for Lent. Um, <laughs> wouldn't that be cool? So with all of this in mind here about how Isaiah and Jesus and his followers thought about scrolls, which are scripture in this context, right? These are scrolls containing scripture how they thought about Jesus being a new revelation that unlocked scripture and its meaning for the now, for our own lives, and for how we're to live. With that in mind, I think we can consider the picture that John gives us then in the book of Revelation that Cassie read for us last week. And she, did a, she did a great sermon on singing and worship. And so the image is like that song that we sang this morning from the Revelation song. It's Jesus sitting on a throne in heaven, and there's the rainbow that Ken talked about a couple of weeks ago. And the creatures and the elders are singing in worship, as Cassie talked about last week. And then Jesus says he held out his hand, and he has a scroll in his right hand. And John starts to cry. He starts to weep because he feels like there's nobody there who's actually able to open the scroll. And this is really the emotional high point in the scene, as John is sitting there crying. He's sad because the scroll is inaccessible. He's like, how can I, how can other people actually understand and access this glory that has been promised to this people that's in this picture of the throne and the angels and the beings who are singing and the, and the rainbow? How do I fit in if no one can access this? And then in John's vision, Jesus unseals the scroll. And I think first century Jewish readers would have understood this metaphor. They knew Isaiah in and out. And John is affirming that it took Jesus' life to unlock the meaning of Scripture for our lives. And this brings us joy, not sadness. So without the reading of Scripture looked at through Jesus' life, there can be this incredible scene of beauty and majesty and music going on around us, but we can't know if we're really part of that without a revelation of Jesus telling us that we are included in this picture, that we're part of it. In the words of the Ethiopian eunuch, how can we know what it means unless someone explains it to us? So when I read or when I go to movies, Rachel has learned one of my pet peeves um, is reading writers who like to write about writing or going to movies 
where they're depicting like the screenwriting process or the movie making process. Because for me, it feels a little navel gazing, you know, like the writers don't have much to offer us beyond, you know, like how they do their craft. And this sermon feels a little bit like that to me as I was preparing it. It's like a preacher talking about preaching. But I think teaching from scripture is part of John's overall vision of worship and what happens when we worship together. For us, it's mainly here on Sundays. So the reading of the scroll or of scripture and doing what Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch and giving commentary through a Jesus lens, it's part of worship, according to John. And we do it so that we know that we're included in Jesus's vision of restoring the whole world and to help us unlock the meaning of scripture in our own lives, both individually as well as for the corporate whole of us. So something that we don't talk about a lot is the formation of our collective memory. So I was thinking about this as Cassie was speaking last week. And I was thinking about how there are certain songs that when I sing them, they take me to another part of my life. I think that's probably the case for many of you, and that for religious songs as well as whatever, um, songs can take us into different memories. So like last week we sang, It Is Well With My Soul. And all I could think about was how that was the first song I learned to play on my guitar. And then how I found myself studying in Jerusalem in a house that was actually built by that composer. And so as I'm singing, I'm thinking about what was happening in my life at those times and just remembering God's faithfulness to me in my journey. And I do that every time I sing that song. Like when we sing, bless the Lord of my soul, I remember getting on my knees in the back of a church the night before I had to give a big talk and how God just met me there. I think singing causes me to remember what God has done. Right? And all of these different data points from different parts of my journey, they collect together in that space. It's like space and time collapse. They disappear in a sense that's both mystical and mysterious. And our memories collect in this sort of song puddle. And when we sing, we're bringing all of that before God. And I think the same can be true of Scripture. There are certain stories or verses that remind me of different parts of my life. And certain stories or verses remind me of our collective life as a church. So some of you old timers, you might be with me if I say, do you remember that time like 15 years ago when Ken did that that sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount? Anybody? Yeah, it like changed my view of Jesus. Or I might ask you here at Blue Ocean Faith, do you remember last fall when A.D. Wasink came and she used the story of Esther to help give our story of our church some framing? And some of you who are here will be like, yeah, I remember that. Do you remember the first time Ken preached on Romans 14 and 15? Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yes, we do. We have a shared learning, you know, and that we pastors, we don't get up here and just sort of spout out these sort of pre-downloaded data points that we have, right? We're, We're teaching from what we're learning and from our own study and our own spiritual life. And so then we're all learning together. We're just sort of leading the learning process, Um, You know, I actually learned a lot about the symbolism of birds in scripture and about how studying nature could revive our sense of wonder and connection to God when we did that sermon series last summer on Consider the Birds. And I was teaching it, and I felt like, gosh, maybe I benefited the most. Some of you guys read theological books together in your small groups. And all of these things, they build a collective memory, right? It's a collective memory about how Jesus has revealed himself to us as a group over the years. And you don't have to have been part of it for very long to be part of it. You could have been coming for, for two weeks and you're part of it. I felt like Cassie's picture of the river, like she talked about worship being like a river. I felt like that was really, really helpful um, last week because it's like no matter where it is that you step into a river, you're still part of the whole of it. 
You know, like what's past and what's in the future? Like there's this stream that you are entering that's larger than yourself, right? We're part of a bigger narrative. And so collective memory, it forms us and it shapes us as a people. And I believe that it's guided by the Holy Spirit so that we're able to be the kind of people that he's asking us to be. And that we're not supposed to have the same collective memory as another church or another group. We have our memory because we have a specific witness in this community and what God is using us for. So when Jesus read from a scroll, he was like reading his own personal mission statement. And he said, free the captives, give sight to the blind, proclaim God's favor. Like that was what he was there to do. And as followers of Jesus, of course, that becomes part of our mission as well. But I think it's helpful to know what our specific collective mission is in the church, in this community. And we've talked about this quite a bit, but it's about connection, I think. It's to press in to what it means to be deeply connected people, connected to God, connected to each other, connected to the world around us, and connected to ourselves. And I think connection, when I think about it, I'm like, gosh, there's so many tools that we can use to delve into all of those different areas, and it will take us lifetimes to sort of delve into those things. You know, tools like prayer, of working through relationships that are difficult, of thinking through justice for the oppressed, care for the earth, how we can have more deep and intimate connection with Jesus and trying to hear from God so that he can guide us in our lives. So we're here to explore deeply what it means to be a holistic, connected people. And we're here to be a witness of the full inclusion of everyone in this vision. You know, when Jesus got up and he read his scroll, we could get up and read one and maybe it would say, for God so loved the world and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, and then we could drop the mic and sit down. <laughs> and maybe one day say, you know, today this, this scripture is being fulfilled. So our collective memory is formed in large part by our worship gatherings, right? It's part of why we have the rhythm of gathering with fellow believers and why that's so important in the lives of people of faith. That's why the author of the letter to the Hebrews tells us not to neglect meeting together and encouraging one another because the Lord is forming us together for something that's even larger than what he's doing with us individually. So we're going to take a couple of minutes of silence here. And I'll invite you, if you would like to and are willing, to maybe uh, do one of two things, depending on what, what strikes you here. So the first one, I thought there might be some people here who feel like they need a vinegar moment. Like you just kind of long for Jesus to make something clear that hasn't been clear to you. And so just spend those two minutes, maybe open your hands before him and just identify what that is. He may or may not talk to you in this very, you know, two-minute time, but just open your heart to him, invite him to talk to you in that space. And then pay attention to like where your thoughts go or maybe what pictures come into your mind. Or alternatively, some of you might have really resonated when I said, you know, gosh, I have a lot of memories that collect with certain songs or with a certain verse or Bible story. And I thought, if you've got one of those things that's been really important in your life, that maybe you could just sit here and remember that story or song and remember all of the sort of collective data points that collect in your little song puddle and just remember them with gratefulness before God and remember his faithfulness. All right? So take a couple of deep breaths here. Invite the Holy Spirit to just come and be at work in our minds and our imaginations. So Holy Spirit, we offer these things to you. Come.
Spirit, for those who are praying for an aha moment, for some clarity, we ask that you would bring that. We join in their prayer. And we offer up all of these other thoughts and memories of your faithfulness, of your joy, um, with thanksgiving in our hearts. Amen. Can I confess?